This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Craig Brown, the multi-talented satirist, reviewer and journalist, whose new book is called 1234 The Beatles in Time. Craig, welcome. Now, I suppose it's kind of really the first question is, there's an awful lot being written about The Beatles. From your bibliography, it's clear you've read it. What, what made you think when you embarked on this I think there's something new to be done here. <laughs> well, actually, my bibliography is quite large, but I think there's estimated number of books about the Beatles is a thousand, and I've barely scratched the surface of them, I think. I think they've overtaken sort of Henry VIII and ancient Egypt as the most popular topic. I felt that though there have been lots of good books, I mean, it's a surprisingly high standard of books about the Beatles, they tend to be, first, they tend to be quite po-faced, the good ones tend to be very completist, so they, they take you through every moment of their lives. Their sort of key biographer is called Mark Lewison, and he's, if you've got the extended version of his first two volumes of his yet-to-be-completed Life of the Beatles, it's about 2,000 pages, and that takes you to 1962, so before they became famous. And so there are those ones, and he does a very good job of it, but I didn't want to do that kind of dogged trawl through their uh, lives. I didn't want to write a book where you describe what they were doing every day of their lives. And the other kind are sort of kind of fanzine ones or books about their very detailed about their music. I wanted to write a book which incorporated everything. So it incorporated my autobiography in terms of my relationship to the Beatles from the age of about seven, I suppose, that it incorporated a kind of travelogue of going to Hamburg and Liverpool and being shown around Hamburg by sort of the tour guide he's been doing it since 1970. And also I had particular interests in the kind of marginal figures in the Beatles' lives, who I think hadn't been really dealt with before because of their very marginality. And the oddest people crop up. I mean, like, for instance, Christine Keeler had a brief fling with Ringo. Or Malcolm Muggeridge, who had this amazing knack of being in the right place in the right time. But he went into the Star Club in Hamburg when they were just 17, 18 years old and saw the Beatles playing and they recognised him off the television, had a brief conversation with him. Or Jane Asher's father, this very distinguished doctor who I discovered was the person who invented the term Munchausen syndrome. And so I like all those. And the, and the, and the people who lost out to the, the Beatles, like Detective Sergeant Norman Pilcher, who was always trying to catch them with drugs and ended up in prison himself, or the singing nun, <laughs> who just after Kennedy's assassination at the end of 63 topped the charts with this uh, song, which I remember my parents always playing, Dominica, about uh, St. Dominic. 
and she was really riding high on the charts. And then suddenly the Beatles came to America. They came much more suddenly in America than they had done in England, where it was slightly gradual, more gradual build up. And so she was knocked out of the charts. And you can see the effect that it had on her life. Eventually, she became a sort of lesbian disco performer. Well, there's worse fates. I mean, can't blame it entirely on the Beatles, but there are these people whose lives were affected. Or by or poor Helen Shapiro, who they were almost bottom on the bill of a tour that she was doing. She was this great child star, age 16. And then as the tour progressed, the Beatles went higher and higher up in the in the sort of in the list. So they they started off sort of seventh on the bill and then they'd be sixth, fifth. And eventually they ended up going in their own car. And poor Helen Shapiro, who had been the top act, saw this Daily Mirror headline saying, Helen Shapiro, is she a has-been at 16? And uh, anyway, so I was inter- interested in all so these. There's a lot of, kind of casualties along the way. Yeah. Uh, what, this thing of looking at, you know, digging out the marginalia and, the, you know, at one point, for instance, you, you mentioned the distinguished glove puppet with which they made one of their early TV appearances. <laughs> is that something that's in common? Because your previous two big books, there's the Princess Margaret book and the book which kind of linked you know, Rasputin to Michael Barrymore via a series of sort of handshakes and introductions. Is, is there a sort of common theme that links those three books in your, your style or your approach, do you think? I think I think there's a kind of bitty approach. I used to, when I was a schoolboy, there used to be these things called jackdaw. They weren't books. They came in a, in a sort of envelope. And so you get, they're all on history, I think. So you'd get the execution of Charles I, but you'd have reproductions of all the documents, you know, the document with his execution being signed and, and that kind of thing. And so they were sort of, they were bitty. You could move them around. You could create your own chronology for them. And so I suppose they all have that in common. And also the linking. I mean, I'm very interested in failures. It's usually more interesting than success because success gets a sort of sheen to it and, and people's lives in some ways become more simple when they become successful. But dealing with failure is a much more complicated issue, I think. And so in some ways, I'm more interested in Pete Best than I am in Ringo Starr, who replaced him in The Beatles. And how do you, how do you live your life as Pete Best? You came within such a glance of amazing wealth and fame. You have these, it does... So, I mean, Cliff Richard, for instance, goes through it. As a... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I like, I think there was, a, there was a Kingsley Amis poem about, you know, uh, it was something to do with, you know, if a bishop preaches or a ploughboy, if there is such a thing, farts, then it's not interesting. It's only interesting if the bishop farts and the ploughboy preaches. And, and I think with, with Cliff Richard, it's very nice to know that, you know, he harboured this resentment of the Beatles because he was almost a twin of John Lennon. I think they were born within a week of each other. And when the Beatles were still completely obscure and, you know, desperate for gigs and just doing odd little kind of dances in Liverpool, he was already a film star as well as a pop star. He was the big thing that everyone adored and all the girls, they were screaming at Cliff Richard. And then, of course... 
within two or three years, he was doing Eurovision Song Contest and that kind of, he'd become this sort of mainstream family entertainer. He's a terrible uh, frilly outfit as well. Yeah, and singing congratulations. And I think deep down he felt it was very unfair, you know, he played everything by the rules. And then, you know, of course his, his sight, priggishness, meant that he did disapprove of the Maharishi and their, their love of Eastern religion and drugs and all that kind of thing. And he was this sort of straight guy. And so he was marginalised by the time he was about 25, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, actually, Cliff's quite a good example because you've done, you, you know, you found, for instance, you know, the Tom Hibbert interview in Q from 25 years ago in which Cliff just let slip quite how annoyed he'd been about the Beatles all these years. I mean, I'm just wondering about the research for this because it feels to me like you're going through the whole kind of, I wouldn't say literature quite of the period, but the, you know, the showbiz memoirs and the magazine pieces and things like a sort of baleen whale sifting for these little nuggets. <laughs> I hope what I haven't done, what I wouldn't like to do is, you know, is shove it all in because I don't, I don't like books. And I think that might be one of my advantages over these otherwise more professional Beatles biographers that I, I sort of, I do have quite a kind of wide reading base and so, you know, so I will have read Malcolm Muggeridge's diaries and I'll remember that, that he bumped into the Beatles and, and that sort of thing. Or Mrs. Thatcher, you know, I, I don't think most Beatles biographers would be interested in Mrs. Thatcher and her relation to the Beatles. But actually, if you look up the Thatcher archive of, of all her interviews and things, and then in Hibbert's book, you can get quite a full picture of what she, what she thought of the Beatles and what she wanted to think of the Beatles, always told to think of the Beatles. But also, I mean, talk about above and beyond. I mean, you must be the only Beatles biographer who has read not only, you know, with assiduity, but with apparent enjoyment, the collected British medical journal contributions of Jane Asher's dad. Well, actually, I do recommend them. I mean, the BMJ has a, a website easily accessible. And I was really, I was expecting just to sort of, you know, glance at them and see if there were anything about, well, I, I knew there would be anything about the Beatles, but just sort of get some flavour. But actually, I read all his articles to the end because he was a very witty writer and just full of full of interesting Things. I mean, someone should do a little anthology of its pieces, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I did find the, the whole Asher household fascinating because Paul, when he was young, and Jane Asher, who was already famous at one point, more famous than the Beatles, he, he was invited to move into the, the Asher house on Wimpole Street and so lived there for three or four years. And they sort of, they taught him lots of stuff about uh, cultural things that he didn't know and he kind of and he had this great appetite for for knowledge and for culture he wooed her with a with a bit of chaucer was also new on me i think paul mccartney once said and i'm not sure i put it in the book but the people had got it wrong about the beatles it's actually the interesting thing about them or what made them different from other groups was that they were middle class which isn't quite true i mean certainly ringo was as working class as he could possibly get and george but, you know, they were grammar school boys, or not Ringo, but the others, and they had very good teachers. And so John was also a keen reader, you know, especially of Lewis Carroll, Edward Lear. But they also knew Chaucer, and Paul McCartney had a particular English teacher who he was very, obviously very influenced by, and he knew Chaucer. He, and I suppose sensing that Jane Asher was more cultured than 
he was or knew more than he did. I suppose it was a kind of, it may well have been a sort of come on that he, he showed her that he, that he could quote Chaucer. Now, having kind of magpied all this stuff together, or jackdawed it all together, I mean, did you have a sort of scheme for how to organise it? Because it's, it's sort of, it's in a number of numbered chapters, but, you know, you kind of begin with Brian Epstein walking down the steps into the cavern yes. right back at the beginning. And you yes. end there as well, but play Epstein's life in reverse in the last, in the last section. Yes, I don't know whether that works or not. I mean, I try and do kind of some tricksy things with the, without making the whole book tricksy. But I think especially if someone commits suicide, which it seems fairly likely that he did, he's only made suicide attempts before, I think then you do, you somehow see, do see their life kind of in reverse in some way. And there was that book about 10 years ago called Stuart, A Life Backwards, which did this sort of tramp's life in reverse. And I, I thought that would be an interesting way of doing it. And then to give the book a kind of shape to begin and end with the same passage, which is just his discovery of the Beatles. And just this, I, I think all my books are linked by, or the last three, by the sort of randomness, the, the randomness of the Beatles' lives, the randomness of, of say, I mean, for instance, Paul would never have met George if he had got a few marks more in his Latin GCE, they call GCE, GCSE, his O-level anyway. Yeah. Uh, but he missed it by a bit and so was kept down a year and therefore met George, who was a year younger. And so George would never have been a Beatle but for those few marks on a Spanish O-level. And I think that's um, very interesting. Anyway, it's to but go back... Don't you have a sort of sliding doors moment as well, don't you, where you say in one version of it, you know, the, f the, weather's, the weather's crap, the family stays in. Yeah, oh, yeah. Nothing happens. And in another one, you know, the sun shines and the Beatles are formed. Yeah, I know there's a bit, I think, early on, there's a bit with Paul McCartney's parents married in their late 30s. They knew each other slightly, but they only got together because Hitler or whoever, the Goering, chose to bomb Liverpool on a particular evening. And Liverpool was very hard hit in the Blitz. And on that particular evening, Paul McCartney's father had to stay in the same house overnight and therefore got to know Mary, uh, Paul McCartney's mother. And it, within a week or two, they were engaged and then had Paul. So if, if the bombs hadn't fallen on that particular night, they wouldn't have been in the house. Therefore, Paul McCartney wouldn't have been born. I mean, you can do that with everyone's life, but it's particularly interesting when you have this sort of global phenomenon that is the... Beatles. Yeah, does that sort of sense of randomness and of the effects of chance, it also seems to work backwards in this. I mean, I was fascinated by a passage in which, which is, you know, it's very funny, but also seems to be saying something slightly deeper about this sort of punch up at a barbecue where John got drunk and beat up one of his friends. And you can just very deadpan kind of juxtapose this I think, eight to ten different accounts, some of them even by the same biographers in different books. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you could do that. I think any historian, I'm not calling myself a historian, but would realise that. And, and the other books I've done, and my wife does books about the Romanovs, and almost every account of everything differs, uh, even with something as recent as, you know, a fight that, John had in 1963. This is when he came back 
he'd, he'd gone on this curious holiday with Brian Epstein soon after the Beatles had become pretty famous. And then someone at the party, uh, which is in Liverpool, suggested that they'd had a gay fling together. And so John then hit this man, who was a local disc jockey, who then had to go to hospital. But there are all these different accounts of, you know, how much damage was done. So I just do it like a kind of chart from about, yes, about 10 people, for different people who work there, different people at the party, different Beatles biographers. You know. So I have a thing saying the assault, what the assault was, and then the extent of the injury. And they're all completely different. And the one who, the biographer who disliked John the most, Albert Goodman, the American who did the very big selling biography of John. It's good value, old Goodman. He says, seized the shovel and began to beat Wooler to death. It <laughs> wounded in murder, he says. You know, where the others are, are just saying, you know, well, he punched him or he, and then others say he smashed him up. But I think I could have done that with virtually every incident, but I thought it would get very tedious for the reader to give all the different possibilities. So I, with most things, I just said what I thought was the most likely and got on with it. Is there a sort of link at all between your technique in how you put stuff together here and in the way you do your parodies? I'm thinking just of the way that, you know, you'll in a very deadpan way often just sort of quote exactly, you know, the account of something and it'll often be sort of riddled with bathos. But you'll just I have... I mean, I'm always... I think one of the things I do in my parodies is poke fun at... I, I, I think most people are fairly unself-aware, and I'm as unself-aware as most people. So I, I, I don't quite know how I, how or why I do these books. I do, going back to an earlier question, I do assemble them a bit like a jigsaw. So I wrote about all the things which took my fancy, and I missed out things which didn't, which I, and so one of the things is, is that I don't put the boring stuff in. Obviously, the Princess Margaret was much more evident because most of her life was very, very boring, opening bazaars and things like that, or changing her clothes. The Beatles are much more interesting, but I, I focus on the things which amuse me. I mean, things like Cliff Richard or Muggeridge. And then I, having written them, I then lay them out like a kind of jigsaw and try and work out which chapter goes where, so as both to build up a, a huge picture but also not to be strictly chronological and just a, a kind of dogged trawl through their lives. What are your personal connection to the Beatles? Were they a band that was very important to you? Yes, well, I was, I was born in 57, so that, which is actually when it's not a real connection. I'm not sort of pushing myself forward, but it was sort of, I was born about two months before John met Paul. One didn't lead to the other, and so and then I and then when they split up in 1970, I was about a month away from my teenage years, so I was about to be 13. And of course, at that time, a year, I mean, or a month is like kind of four years. So it, it all the way through writing this book, I thought, my God, it's extraordinary. You know, there was only kind. Of, they did a magical mystery tour, went to India. Brian Epstein dies. John meets Yoko. All these things that happen within about a few months of each other. I'd always imagined it was sort of years or in my childhood. It just seemed so, such long a distance apart. And you do realise how incredibly busy the Beatles were, even when they were zonked out or when John particularly was zonked out on heroin. He was amazingly energetic. 
You say early on that, that your favourite Beatles says a lot about you. Who was yours? Uh, mine was and remains Paul, who is unfashionable. I'm slightly less than he was. He, he's very unfashionable because he's alive, I think. And so certainly after John was murdered, everyone kind of glorified John and saw Paul as, as a sort of Cliff Richard figure. But I think Paul, first he had amazing talent for melody and also for lyrics. I mean, um, things like She's Leaving Home or Eleanor Rigby. But also I feel that without his, his drive, which is one of the things which in the last kind of 18 months irritated the other Beatles, without that drive, the Beatles wouldn't, maybe wouldn't have got going, but certainly wouldn't have kept going after Epstein died. And so I also feel that of, of all of them, he's the only one who you could almost guarantee would have been a successful composer, even if he, I mean, he had a lovely voice, but so he had a sort of talent which would, and, and the drive, he would have succeeded by himself. But I, I think John was too, too tricky a character to have succeeded alone. You can't tell these things, but... But Paul also seems to have... I mean, you were talking about people not having self-knowledge. He seems to have quite a lot. I mean, there's a bit where you quote where he says, after John went, you know, he said, I, I need something to kind of put some grit in my... You know, I'm naturally drawn to kind of schmaltz. And, you know, I mean, he didn't say, and look, we ended up with a frog song, but... Yes, I mean... <laughs> I mean, he did do the frog song, but he did a lot of other things too. And I think, you know, he had young children. He was just writing a song for them. I, I think with any composer, or even with any writer, it's it's wrong to just pick the worst things and say, oh, look what he did, because uh, everyone's written duff sentences and duff books and things so like that. it's a low blow. But I think, yeah, obviously, quite clearly, both John and Paul were were better in the Beatles. There's no, virtually no songs after they left the Beatles which match up to the best of the Beatles songs. In fact, I'd say there were none. And so they they needed each other. They needed their friendship and their competition they were always trying to sort of show the other how good they were. And they were amazingly productive. I mean, they most, they wrote, Paul said that when they sat down to write a song, they, they usually have done one, that they never had a session where they sat down to write a song and didn't come away with a, a song which they then recorded. And they were very ambitious. I think that's the thing which I've noticed with reading other pop autobiographies like Bob Dylan's, to succeed at that level, at Dylan's or the Beatles, you have to be very, very ambitious. It doesn't just sort of happen. And when they were sort of 16, 17, they were writing down, when they were writing lyrics, Paul would write lyrics by Lennon McCartney, you know, as if they were already on the level of Gershwin or someone like that. And so they had a very clear sense of wanting to succeed. Also, kind of you suggest that not being as it were, properly trained in music, kind of helped them. I mean, there's a bit where they say, there's a chord, and I think she loved me, yeah, 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 where they produce this chord and they say, nobody's ever heard this chord before. And the sound engineer sort of goes, oh, yes, it's in, you know, Sibelius or Gershwin or whatever it is. And it's one of the reasons I, I suspect why pop genius lasts only a few years. And it's, I, I almost can't think of anyone of whom it's true to say that their career is a really productive writer of great songs, pop songs, lasts more than kind of five or six years. And I, because of that... Not even Dylan or Leonard Cohen? Uh, Leonard Cohen, I think... I, I wouldn't say Dylan. I, I wouldn't really want to listen to anything of Dylan's over the last, from the last 
25 years. Certainly not the Stones, who last had a kind of hit song in about 1982, I think. And so people re then retread their previous things. I think for Leonard Cohen's slightly different because his songs, in a funny way, I love his songs, but they don't really progress. And he's really, <laughs> he's really a poet who, who then sings. sings. His, so I think he's slightly, uh, he, he's the only possible exception to my draconian rule. And I think it is that simplicity. Everything is an act of discovery and excitement. And then, and then you, saw, you start realizing how your own talent works and, and then it, it dries up, or to some extent dries up. I mean, obviously Paul can still write songs, but why hasn't he done a, a song like Eleanor Rigby, which you'd think would be the work of a mature man rather than a sort of 26, 27 year old, whatever he was then, just in that it's, it's not about Love. It's not about the singer. It's a it's a little short story, rather beautifully done. And it's strange that he hasn't kind of matured in that way. But uh, but I think it is this thing that the genius in pop music flies on and it hovers over someone else. One detail that absolutely had my jaw on the floor. Perhaps it's very widely known among Beatles people, but that Stephen Bailey, who is even now I hope labouring on a, reviewing a book about cars for us, is the only begetter of I Am The Walrus. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I know Stephen a bit, and he did remind me at a party a, a kind of a couple of years ago. Uh, but he, yes, he was at Quarry Bank, John Lennon's old school, and he wrote a letter to John as a, you know, 15-year-old or something, saying that they were now being taught John's lyrics by an English teacher. John had a sort of a dislike of his old school, as you'd imagine, and so he just thought it was terribly funny. He wrote, he wrote a very, one of the interesting things about John, he wrote very long, quite charming letters. You wouldn't have thought he'd have ever got around to writing letters. But, he, you know, and so he wrote back to this schoolboy, you know, saying he was amused. But, but it also prompted him to write nonsense, to write more nonsensically, to see if academia would, you know, would follow him down every route of his own nonsense. And then he, because uh, he was always keen on Lewis Carroll anyway, he was interested in the concept of nonsense. And so he did write, I am a walrus, as, as a result, as far as I can see, of, of Stephen Bailey's letter. <laughs> I think Stephen's, Stephen hasn't got the letter. I think he's rather cross that he hasn't. He gave it to someone. And, of course, now it would, you know, it would be worth some unbelievable, some like 150000 I should think. The Beatles memorabilia is off the wall. You have a kind of... You know, one of the gonzo aspects of the book is you do, I don't know whether subject yourself is too unkind a way to put it, but you, you go anyway to a, a Beatles convention. Yes, yes. I went with my wife to the last Beatles, I think they're called Beatles Weeks in, in Liverpool. I mean, in a way, the whole of Liverpool throughout the year is a Beatles convention because it's just overrun by sort of Beatles stuff and Beatles statues and plaques and Beatles guides and in a, in a way that is quite moving. But yeah, so I went to the Adelphi Hotel, it used to be one of the grandest hotels in the world, now has you know, signs saying, you know, happy hour, two lagers for £1.25. And I saw all these, I mean, apart from all the lookalike groups, or from all over the world, these strange Beatles lookalike groups, but there are also people selling Beatles merchandise. I mean, anything is, is sellable. I have one story um, in the book about a dentist. In fact, dentists sort of pop up in the book. 
But there was a dentist, Canadian dentist called Dr. Michael Zuck, Z-U-K, who bought a tooth of John Lennon's, which John had given his housekeeper, his daughter was a Beatles, big Beatles fan about 1965. Anyway, 10 years ago, Dr. Zuck bought this tooth. Was it a grown-up tooth or a baby tooth? Oh, no, it was, a, it was a grown-up tooth, of which there was a picture in the book. <laughs> <laughs> he bought it for £19,000. Everyone thought it was completely mad. He said he was going to take it round dental conventions to show them what a Beatles tooth looks. <laughs> in fact, recently what's happened is that he's been advertising for people who think that they might be illegitimate children of John Lennon and the idea that the tooth can give the DNA, you know, they can share the DNA or compare the DNA, and then they can sue the Yoko Ono or the Lennon Ono estate and, and grab millions. And so he's actually doing it <laughs> for mercenary reasons. Anyway, there are, so in that's, that's an example of, of what happens in my book where everything is, you know, I, I, I leap towards the sidelines of the main story in a lot of ways. Yes, I sort of love that you met a quarryman at the convention as well. That was nice because I had been worried that I hadn't done, you know, enough actual sort of physical research or first-hand research, whatever it's called. And then quite by chance, I was in this very hot ballroom. I think it was in August at that kind of time with all this merchandise and hundreds of Beatles fans, all of whom looked like sort of Bernie Sanders. And I, so I crept up a sort of staircase to get away from it all for a bit. And, and this man said, oh, Craig. And he'd just been told by our tour guide the day before. I hadn't told the tour guide I was writer, and I didn't tell Bill, this man, that I was a writer either. And anyway, he was one of the original quarrymen with John Lennon, you know, when they were school kids. And so he could have, if he'd stayed on, he conceivably, he could have been a Beatle. Instead, he went to South Africa and worked, I think, in property or something. I can't remember. But yeah, so that was a, an opportune meeting. Yes, you say that the quarry, quarrymen studies is a whole separate kind of world of... The, the pedantry. I mean, I'm kind of drawn into it in some aspects in my book, but the pedantry of, of Beatles fans. And I know that, you know, lots of Beatles fans will know, almost everyone in Liverpool knows more than, than I do about the detail of the Beatles' lives. And yes, and it's, and it's hard, I think for any writer about the Beatles, it's, it's hard to get out of the pedantry, out of the detail and into some other kind of sphere, because all the, all the details are interesting in a way that my previous book about Princess Margaret details about the royal family. I mean, obviously, some details are interesting, but actually, you don't want to know what the Queen Mother was wearing on her Canadian tour of 1962 or that kind of thing and yet royal people royal bugs shove it all in but somehow with the beatles you know you in a funny way you do want to know what john lennon was was wearing in rishikesh when they went to stay with the maharishi but you have to judge how you know at what point the reader is going to think enough is enough and also you've got to judge what point to, to make things larger and more kind of philosophical or more amusing or that kind of thing. There is, it does reach into something more, you know, there's more pathos in it. There's more kind of a sense of that all this trivia adds up to something, you know, tinged with sadness. I mean, do, how much was Brian Epstein for you a kind of part of the emotional core of the book or a sort of anchor to it? 
I was I was very fascinated by him, and and it is a very sad story because when you know we're talking about when I was sort of preteen and uh, you know following the Beatles. At that point, Brian Epstein, whenever he saw pictures of him, he looked very very grown up. He looked a different generation. In fact, when he died, he was only thirty three. He was always very smartly dressed, always had short hair even when their hair had grown long. He seemed like the organized man and they seemed like these kind of tearaways who were then becoming hippies. And But in fact, he was very kind of muddled character. He was very good at managing and obviously very honest. I'm told someone had dealings with him that uh, he, was, he was actually very nice, generous kind of figure. But took far more drugs even than John, and then took drugs to get him to sleep, drugs to keep him awake. A very solitary, he was worried that his gay life, which was very, very rackety, would then, he was being blackmailed, he was worried that that would come out. Everything about the Beatles obsessed him and looking after the Beatles, he was worried that, that the blackmail would then hit the Beatles' reputation. He was just a a string of worries and neuroses when he should have been the happiest man in the world. And he was easily the most successful manager. He had, in in some sense, created the Beatles. And yet, the more successful he was, the more miserable he became. And then I think after the Beatles stopped touring in 66, he was, you know, it was one thing he was very good at doing, organising all the touring, all that kind of business. He never went to the studio, hardly ever went to the recording studio. They were going to spend more and more time in the recording studio. I think he was, he was feeling he was he was losing them. And so I think that does make the emotional core of the book. And there are other areas which are sad, but, but sort of triumphant. I mean, Ringo spent, when he was 14, he was two years in hospital, and age seven, he was a year in hospital. His mother was told he wouldn't survive the night. And so that's a kind of touching story, the Ringo's story. But of course, it ends in triumph, whereas Brian Epstein starts from this secure middle class Jewish base in Liverpool, went to public school, you know, everything was comfortable, and then had this amazing success with the Beatles and was sadder, more miserable than ever. Well, Craig, I think our time's up, but I hope we've got a good sense of your book from that. It's a wonderful book. And Craig Brown, thank you very much for your time. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.